0: Welcome to the Wealth Experience podcast series where our subject matter experts provide the latest updates on what's happening in the world around us brought to you by BMO Private Wealth. Good day everybody. My name is Sylvain Brisbois and I'm a Senior Vice President, National Sales Manager with BMO Private Wealth. Today I'm here with Leslie Marks, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management BMO Private Wealth and with Doug Porter, Chief Economist BMO Financial Group. In our discussion today, we're going to zero in on potential implications of this record deficit for Canadian families, a topic that is very relevant to our clients. So let's get started with you, Doug. Recently, the Canadian government released an economic and fiscal snapshot, which provides the first estimate of our government's finances post the COVID-19 pandemic. What for you were the most important insights from this snapshot, and by extension, were any major surprises
1: revealed? It was that big deficit number that you, uh, you suggested early on, uh, 343 billion or more than 15% of GDP is just, you know, simply off the charts, literally in, in terms of historical perspective. And it was almost a hundred billion dollars larger than what the conventional wisdom had been where we were headed for the deficit uh, going into, uh, to the statement. Now I will point out that about uh, half of that overshoot, about 50 billion dollars, is extra spending the uh, the government believes it's it's going to have to put towards the uh, the wage subsidy, uh, which has really only just uh, now begun to uh, to gear up in a in a significant way, and they've also it seems like they've left a, a little bit of downside risk in case the economy surprises is weaker than expected and revenues are weaker than expected. So I think one of the main points here is that the uh, the government is, is not through supporting the economy. They've still got uh, they've left some money aside. Uh, and And a lot of money aside to uh, to help support the recovery in the months ahead. so in in some respects i won't I won't say this is the the worst case scenario, but they've they've definitely left some room to a support the economy and in case uh, the economy actually turns out to be worse than than expected. And I think the other key point above and beyond that uh, that headline deficit. And and it's an important underlying message, which in fact the government tried to drum home, is that even with this big run up in the deficit and the much larger debt, their interest costs for this year are actually going to be lower than they were last year, and of course that's a function of the uh, the collapse in uh, in the interest rates that we've seen over the past year. So even with this record breaking budget deficit, this you know now what, what we're likely to see a trillion dollar debt. We're actually looking at lower interest costs because bond yields have, have dropped so, so sharply. And, you know, even with, you know, some disappointment in the immediate aftermath of, of the deficit, we've actually got long-term borrowing rates again uh, close to or at record lows. You know, as, as we speak, uh, 30-year government bond yields are essentially 1%. 10-year government bond yields are, are a half a percent. And what we've seen is the government begin to tilt its borrowings more into that long end of the curve. So in other words, they're now borrowing more for 30 years, 10 years. They're essentially locking in these these very low interest rates. I know a lot of folks are concerned that you know we've got low interest rates now, but what about in the future? Well, if the government locks in their borrowing costs for 10 or 30 years, we're really not going to have to be that concerned about a backup in interest rates in uh, in the coming years.
0: Okay, so that's really got good Canadian context, if I can ask... Uh, your opinion on how this fiscal situation compares with other countries around the world. I'm assuming it's a relative conversation that we should be having with, between countries.
1: So that's definitely the case. I mean, we are not isolated by any means. You know, we've essentially seen almost every major government in the world uh, step up and, and take very aggressive actions. Canada's actually, you know, we're we're close to the middle of the pack, maybe a little bit above the middle of the pack in terms of how aggressive we've we've been. But there have been other countries that have actually done even more, have seen their deficits rise by by even more. And I think that when all the dust settles, when all is said and done on 2020, we're going to find almost every major economy in the world uh, spent a roughly similar amount, that their, their deficits rose by roughly a similar amount. I think we're going to find a lot of countries with budget deficits of 15, even 20% of GDP when all this is is said and done. And, you know, of course, Canada did come into this in in relatively good shape. I wouldn't say pristine, but compared to most other major economies, we were in somewhat better shape. It is true that we're one of the few that have been downgraded and only one ratings agency downgraded us. Um, But I, I would put that more down to the fact that, you know, we came into it towards the lower end of the AAA rated countries. And there are not many of them, by the way. So, you know, even a mild downturn in finances over the next year might have put that AAA rating at, at risk in the eyes of that ratings agency. So I, I actually don't believe that uh, that Canada really suffers in comparison to, uh, to other major economies. And finally, just to what, say one example, I believe the U.S. is going to end up with a budget deficit of over $4 trillion this year, and that's going to be close to 20% of GDP, so much, actually much larger than, uh, than Canada's uh, deficit this year. Very good. I will come back to our
0: neighbors to the south in a second. But in the meantime, Finance Minister uh, Morneau announced this unprecedented deficit. The natural question, I suppose, is how will the government fund that? Are we setting ourselves up for higher taxes in the future? And I think that's an interesting question for the audience. What areas are most likely to be targeted if we do, in fact, head to higher taxes?
1: And now we're really getting into the meat of the discussion. How how do we actually pay for these enormous uh, deficits. And, you know, I, all along I've said that what, what's going to, quote, pay for this is, is a temporary, hopefully temporary, uh, rise in the debt-to-GDP ratio. If we break down the argument for for higher taxes into an economic and a political one, from an economic standpoint, I think there's no argument whatsoever for, for higher taxes. What we need is an economic recovery above all else. Even a, a substantial increase in taxes is not going to come close to bringing down this, uh, this deficit in, in a meaningful way. And just to put it in the, in a perspective, you know, some people have talked about a wealth tax of, you know, one to 2% on, uh, say, wealth above $20 million or so. That's, that's one proposal that's uh, being bandied about by, by some groups. Well, there, that proposal, according to the parliamentary budget office, would raise about $10 billion a year. To put it in perspective, the CERB is costing us more than $10 billion a month. So, you know the the bottom line is even a substantial increase in in a wealth tax or a, a new wealth tax I should say is is barely going to make a dent in the deficit. What we need is an economic recovery, and tax increases and true spending cuts are not going to help that recovery in any way, shape, or form. And and the final word I'll say on that on in terms of the economic argument is Canada already has relatively high. Uh, personal marginal tax rates. It has relatively high corporate tax rates now with the U.S. rate coming down so much. So I think the, uh, the argument for, for higher taxes in Canada, economic argument is incredibly thin. Now, the second part of that is there's a political aspect of this, of course. And there it's a different story. There I think we actually do have some concerns, especially given the, uh, you know, current makeup of the government and, and which party is, is supporting it. And I can see the pressure. In maybe not necessarily in the next 12 months, but in the next 24, 36 months, building, even if it's just you know a, a surface tax to show that the government is doing something, there I can see the pressure for tax increases. And I think in you know the kind of thing they would look at would be some form of a wealth tax, and that might even be you know a higher inclusion rate on on the capital gains uh, or tax rate debt that, that I could see at being risk of increasing in uh, in the in years ahead. The other potential, and we'll get into this in a minute, I suspect, is that if U.S. corporate rates start going up, I could see uh, the government of Canada considering a higher corporate rate, or at least a targeted uh, increase in, in corporate rates. Is it possible that even the as a high end personal marginal tax rate could could ultimately go up? Yes, I I could see it at you know at, at extremely high incomes. I could see the government taking uh, taking a look at that. But again, I would stress that in some provinces we already have one of the highest. Up personal marginal rates in the world already. You know, for instance, in Ontario, it's over 53.5%. One of the highest in the world. And it kicks in at a relatively low income compared to other countries. So uh, again, I will just stress, I think the economic argument is incredibly weak and the revenue payback uh, would be very, very moderate. Job number one is getting the economic recovery going. That's what's going to bring the deficit down and, uh, you know, turn revenues around.
0: Okay, very good. Doug. Maybe one more for you before we get to Leslie. And the notion of our neighbors to the south has come up here. They're entering an election campaign, or maybe they have entered in the election campaign already, and they face similar issues with fiscal support required to uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It appears, at least in the latest polls, that Joe Biden is leading so far. If he wins the election, how do you expect tax policy to change in the U.S.? And you've touched on this. Could that impact, in fact, the policy in Canada?
1: Yeah, and I think the short answer is yes. It's, it is, it is amazing how the polls have turned in the last couple months. You know, we've, we've gone from, you know, looking like it was President Trump's election to lose to now, uh, Biden has got a very strong lead. And in fact, the polls have turned so relentlessly that now it, uh, you know, Wall Street is assuming that the Democrats are, are going to have a clean sweep here and that they'll also take the Senate. And realistically, it is the Senate that is the real prize. Here. And that's, that's ultimately what I believe will drive tax policy. If uh, the Democrats don't take the Senate, then I don't think we would actually end up seeing very substantial uh, changes in, in tax policy. But assuming the Dems do take the uh, the Senate, then I think we're going to s- essentially see a reversal or almost a complete reversal of the, the tax cuts of 2018. So in other words, I think corporate rates in the U.S. would go back up. I think top uh, personal marginal rates would uh, would also go higher. And frankly, for Canada, that would give Ottawa a bit of cover to somewhat bump up, especially the corporate rate, but uh, also possibly the, uh, the, the top marginal rate as well. Again, I, I know it's a third time we said this. I don't, I don't think from an economic standpoint it makes any sense, but a political risk uh, that we could see some upward pressure on uh, on taxes. Uh, by the way, the other key uh, result, I think, of the, a clean sweep of the, of, of the Democrats winning is, is I think we'd still end up with you know, facing some pretty serious protectionist forces. Historically, the Democrats have actually been the protectionist party in uh, in Washington. And, you know, even though I think relations overall would, would probably be a little less frosty between Canada and the U.S., I do believe we'd still be uh, dealing with a protectionist uh, USA, in, uh, even in the result of, uh, of a Biden win.
0: Okay, thank you for your thoughts on the economy and, and on fiscal policy. Leslie, uh, there's been a lot of information here, and, and your role is to figure Uh, all of this out and and, uh, to understand the impact that uh, this can bring on the investment thesis for Canada, especially vis-a-vis the regions that you can invest in. Uh, And we recently saw a downgrade in Canada's uh, credit rating, as was mentioned, uh, from Fitch, likely in response to the increased deficit and and debt levels in this country. Is this a material event for those looking to invest in Canada?
2: Well, it's a good question, and, and Doug highlighted that this was largely as expected, And so we didn't actually see any material price deterioration in our bonds or weakness in our dollar in response. But one caveat is that there are still three other agencies that have Canada's debt at AAA. So we're watching closely for any further downgrades. And we're also starting to see provincial downgrades with which also downgrading Alberta to AA- from AA. So that's another area for us to be cautious. Uh, when we're thinking about the outlook for our fixed income and for our dollar.
0: Interesting. And if we want to continue to dig a little bit more into the uh, relative attractiveness of investing in Canada, how are you viewing the Canadian investments? And this is a question both for equity and the fixed income asset classes.
2: Let's look at the bigger picture first in thinking about fixed income versus equity, and then we can drill into Canada. So recently, the Bank of Canada decided to maintain their overnight rate at – 0.25% and to keep the benchmark there until unemployment falls closer to pre-pandemic levels and also inflation returns closer to their 2% target. So this forward guidance suggests to us that rates won't rise until, well, based on their forecast, until after 2022. So the Bank of Canada is clearly committed to staying the course and doing whatever it takes to help Canadians emerge from this COVID-19-related downturn. So because of this, we would conclude that short-term rates are expected to remain low. In addition, with quantitative easing or bond purchases, the government is also trying to maintain rates at these low levels across the yield curve. So this really makes uh, fixed income investments generally less attractive. There is a commonly used acronym called TINA. Uh, T-I-N-A, which stands for there is no alternative. And this implies that there is no better investment alternative than equities because of such low interest rates. Now, of course, we don't believe this is a sound thesis for owning stocks, and we would focus more on the fundamental attributes of equities. So I wanted to highlight today three reasons why equities are more attractive than bonds from a fundamental perspective. The first is that equities, of course, benefit from a low interest rate environment. Of course, equities have more risk, but lower interest rates impact both the multiple that you would be willing to pay for stocks, so the price to earnings multiple, but also for companies, their ability to borrow at lower rates also can be helpful to their outlook. In addition, today, the s and specifically is yielding over 3%, and this compares with a 30-year bond yield of 1%. The second reason equities are attractive is because, of course, some of the items that Doug mentioned on the fiscal side and also what I talked about on the monetary side, that equities are very well supported by both the fiscal and monetary stimulus, and we expect this to continue for the foreseeable future. The third point is that equities, of course, are well supported by a recovery in economic growth, which we are also seeing right now. In fact, we are seeing very much a V-shaped recovery in many of the data points that we are seeing in real time from the most recent economic data, whether that's declining unemployment, improving consumer confidence, retail spending. So, Overall, there is a good fundamental story supporting equities compared with bonds. Now, turning this specifically to Canadian stocks and when we compare this with other markets, of course, our stocks are a lot cheaper compared with markets like those south of the border, but they should be due to the different composition of the TSX versus the S&P. We don't have as high exposure to some of the high growth sectors like healthcare and technology. But on the other hand, we do have more exposure to more cyclical sectors, whether that's in the commodity space or industrials, areas like oil, oil and gas, energy uh, and base metals, which are all very attractive in the context of an economic recovery. So you could see a rotation away from those secular high growth stories that have really been driving the market, those technology names that are all well known towards more cyclical names, and that's where Canadian stocks could benefit. So uh, Canadian equities overall, they're not our favorite geography right now. We still have uh, U.S. equities as our number one equity market, but I would still say that there's a place for Canadian equities in your portfolio to benefit from that cyclical rotation, which we think will come once people view this economic recovery as sustainable.
0: Very good. Sounds like an appropriate North American lens may be the best approach. I've got one more question for you, Doug, perhaps our last last question. We've seen an increase in economic openings across the country, and this, of course, is going to help the revenue side of the equation. You've touched on this earlier. Would you expect the Canadian government to continue uh, or to bring to a conclusion the support programs that are contributing to the uh, to this deficit, as we've talked about here?
1: Well, I think one of the, the major goals of the government over the next uh, few months will be to transition people away from the CERB and more towards the uh, the wage subsidy and, and those who uh, still aren't able to uh, to benefit indirectly from the wage subsidy, I think will ultimately be moved on to uh, traditional employment insurance, although when I say traditional they uh, they might even refine that critically again, uh, though this this transition and you know bringing in some of these emergency measures will be dependent on how the uh, the underlying economy uh, does fare as Leslie indicated the early indications from the reopenings they've they've been quite encouraging you know we have seen a number of areas like uh, like the housing market like uh, parts of retail sales and like employment begin the early stages of a, of a v-shaped recovery unfortunately you know there's certain sectors that just aren't going to be able to have that v you know in any, anything where crowds have to gather like entertainment uh, you know things like bars and restaurants travel and tourism they're, they're not going to have that, uh, that quick, uh, recovery. And so parts of the economy are, are not going to enjoy that, uh, that. Piece. So it, as the economy still will need some support over, over the next, uh, the next year or so, you know, unless and until we have a vaccine in place, uh, so, some of this fiscal stimulus is, is going to have to go on. But there is, there is a fair bit, you know, given the fact we had a million, almost a million people, uh, get reemployed in the, in the month of June alone. Uh, we we do think uh, the, the flip side of that is we will see some of these uh, emergency programs begin to wind down in the months ahead as the economy does begin to recover, and the flip side of that is this enormous budget deficit will start to come down over uh, over the next year as uh, as well, hopefully rapidly. So,
0: well well done. Well, thank you, uh, Leslie and Doug. This has been really informative, and you've shared some really interesting. Insights is definitely food for thought as we anticipate future state, and and we watch this evolve in front of our eyes. On on behalf of BMO Private Wealth and all of our clients listening in today, thank you. And to our clients, thank you. We strive to bring you meaningful content on a variety of topics, and we hope you found this call to be another gesture of how much we value uh, your relationship and how much uh, we appreciate the trust that you have placed in us. Uh, To everybody, stay well, take care of yourselves, and good luck in these economic times. Thanks and have a great day. This podcast series has been brought to you by BMO Private Wealth. Please join us again.